Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Amen. Well, good morning, all of you. Merry Christmas and welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's so good to be with all of you this morning. To our visitors, welcome. We're glad to have you as well. As we often say, uh, you're only a visitor pretty much when you walk through the door. Uh, after that, you're family. You're here. All right. You're in the mix. And uh, we do pray, as Jimmy shared this morning, that uh, you would feel like family here today. Um, it is an awesome time of year. Uh, I always enjoy the Christmas season. Uh, I enjoy the Christmas songs and the decor. It's fun for us to just be able to celebrate during this time. It's a time when we, uh, we remember things. I think for me, much of what we, much of the feeling for me this time of year is rooted in, in memory, right? You, you think back on your experiences growing up and the various memories that you have, it's good for us to remember. I'm mindful also that for some this time of year maybe isn't rooted in the greatest of memories, right? And so sometimes it means that it's not as great a time of year. Uh, but certainly our hope is that uh, even if for the first time this season, we can help you make some new memories. Uh, we can help you uh, uh, to root this time of year into something that's good, uh, to be in family, uh, to be together, and to celebrate the true reason for the season. It is our opportunity during this time of year, more than, more than perhaps throughout the rest of the year, though I would not suggest that that's a great thing. But this is the time of year when people will expect you to proclaim the news of Jesus. There's going to be people who are going to expect to hear that message even more. So I would encourage you, take advantage of it. Even though there's some that are adversarial towards it, take advantage of the season and the opportunity we have to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, today, we have uh, communion. This is the first uh, Sunday in December. Uh, we've made it our habit, even recently, to do communion a little bit more often. But certainly in the first Sunday of every month, we have communion. It's our opportunity opportunity today to celebrate that. Communion is a celebration. It is often as it may be the case when we take communion that there's an aspect of looking inward uh, and to be rightfully somber as we reflect on what God has done for us as we think about uh, for Christians who we were before coming to Christ. Certainly that's, that's appropriate for us to just consider and to remember where we were and where we've come from. But ultimately communion is a celebration. It's intended to be celebrated. It's something also that we are called to do often. And that when we do, Scripture tells us to, to consider what Jesus has done, to remember it, to remember what God has done, and to proclaim his death, but not just his death, it says to proclaim his death until he comes, okay? And so when we're celebrating, when we're looking back, when we're remembering what it is that he has done, we're doing so with an expectation of his return. And so when we take communion, we look back. We look back to his ministry. We look back to his promises. We look to his death and his resurrection and to his victory over death. We look back to remember in order that we can have confidence as we look forward in expectation of his return. Remembering gives us necessary perspective. This is important because we tend to have short-term memories in a lot of ways. Maybe some of you can relate to that. And I'm not just talking about, yeah, I just really struggle to remember things. No, it seems like really important things sometimes. Even great moves of God in our life often 
are sadly forgotten, especially when it comes to our faith. I wonder, have any of you this year faced a, a personal challenge? Maybe one that required faith. Any of you maybe encounter an unexpected need in this past year that you've, you've found yourself somewhat worried about? Perhaps even, even fearful over what you were going to do, how you were going to work through it? And I wonder, as you faced those various circumstances, was that the first time? Was that the first time in your life you'd ever faced a trial or a difficulty? Probably wasn't. But if you're like many people, it sort of feels like it. So often in our lives, God moves miraculously to answer prayer and to provide. But it seems that uh, though one month he can move a mountain in our lives, the next month we have no idea where our help will come from. The fact is we often have a forgetful faith. And that is what I would title my message this morning. This morning, as we continue our study of Matthew, we're going to consider some examples of forgetful faith. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Matthew in chapter 15, beginning in verse 29. We'll consider some examples of forgetful faith, as well as those also who remember, those who seem to remember what it is that God has done. And we'll also look to some warnings of ways that we can really be blinded to what it is that God is doing. And my hope is that when we leave here today, that we would leave encouraged, that we would leave strengthened in our faith, remembering what it is that God has done. And so as I mentioned, let's pick up our study in Matthew 15 uh, this morning, beginning in verse 29. And if you would, agree with me in prayer once more as we begin. Father God, we pause this morning, Lord, and give you thanks. We've, we've given you thanks already, Lord, if our hearts are right in song. Lord, we give you thanks in our fellowship with one another as we interact with brothers and sisters in Christ. If we're mindful, Lord, of what a blessing that is, Lord, we give you thanks for that. And now, Lord, we come to you and, and to study your word, and we give you thanks for it. And Lord, we ask that you would move in this place, that by your spirit, Lord, you'd give us understanding of the scriptures here this morning, that as I share these words this morning, they would not be my humble words, Lord, but, but you, Lord, and what it is that you have for us. That the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted in this place today. That we would, we would hear, Lord, the necessary message for us this morning. We'd apply it to our lives and that we'd leave different, Lord. And that because of that, Lord, our lives would then give you glory. We would live our lives, Lord, in a way that's pleasing to you. Use this time, Lord, we pray, to mold us and shape us and, Lord, transform us here in this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, okay, so we're picking up here then in Matthew in chapter 15, as I mentioned in verse 29. It's where we ended last week. Let's go ahead and read verses 29 through 31 together as we begin. It says here that Jesus departed from there. He skirted the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame and the blind and the mute, the maimed and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. And so the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. 
Here in verse 29, we see that Jesus departed from there. It says that he went around or skirted the Sea of Galilee, and he went up onto the mountain, and he sat down there. It's as if Jesus knew that just sitting there on the mountain, that the people would come to him. Now, where was it that Jesus departed from? If you recall last week, we considered the fact that Jesus went from Israel and the Galilee region. He went sort of north, northwest, up onto the, the, the coast of the Mediterranean, and, and he went beyond the borders of Israel into the region of Tyre and Sidon, where he encountered the Canaanite woman. Now, this woman had a very persistent faith, if you recall, in that she persevered through what many would have taken as rejection from Jesus. Yet seemingly unfazed, she pursued him in hopes that her daughter would be healed. Now, what should be amazing to us, and it certainly was to the disciples, was not just that this woman's uh, faith was great, but the fact that she was a Gentile. In, in this move, Jesus was demonstrating that his ministry extended beyond the borders of Israel and that he came for all people. Can I get an amen on that? We need to remember that, that he came for all people. Unless there are some of you today here that are Jewish and believe on Jesus as your Savior, as your Messiah, then we should all collectively as Gentiles be saying, praise God that he came for more than just the house of Israel. And he's grafted us in and made us children of God. And so Jesus here is demonstrating that his ministry is much bigger than the disciples thought it to be. And, and as he departs from the area, he does not return to Jerusalem or to Capernaum or to the Galilee region at this time. It says that as he skirted the Sea of Galilee, he's actually continuing on into Gentile territory. Now this is known, the area that he's going into is known as the Decapolis, uh, which which is 10 cities, a conglomeration of 10 cities east of the Sea of Galilee, southeast of Tyre and Sidon. This again is Gentile territory. And in verse 30, we read there, then great multitudes came to him. And it, and it gives a description there of, of all the different maladies that they brought with them. And so here it is that we come to our first example today. This is one of those, uh, this example of, of those who remember uh, differently than what we'll see in the disciples in their forgetful faith. These people remember something. Now, what's happening here is he's ministering to these people are truly incredible miracles. Uh, there's a great multitude, which is that, that fancy word for a lot of people. Right? There's a lot of people. And if we've learned anything through the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000, as we'll consider here shortly, a lot of times what even is, what, us, what to us may seem like, well, that's a lot of people, is, is even more. Okay, so when, when Matthew writes a great multitude, we don't have necessarily a sense of how many are coming to Jesus here. But suffice it to say, it's probably more than what you're even imagining in your mind. This is more than just a few people coming up to Jesus on the hill. It's likely masses from the city in this area coming to him. Tons of people who are going to, as we'll see, spend over three days with him there. Okay, now... Um, what Jesus is doing here is incredible work. This is miraculous work, okay? Uh, these are mostly Gentile people, likely, in this area, and they're being healed. Uh, scripture tells us that it's the blind are seeing again, the mute 
are speaking again. The maimed are healed. Now this is interesting too because a lot of people will look at this word maimed and some have suggested that because of the Greek word and what it means that this is perhaps more than just as we've seen before a withered hand that's sort of brought to life and functioning again. Some people suggest that these are people who have come that are actual amputees and that he's restoring the entire leg or the entire arm or the hand that, that new uh, extremities are, are being grown again miraculously. Okay, he's, he's healing these people. And so that says that the, marvel, the multitude marveled when they saw all of this. And you would too, no doubt. And because of this then, they glorified the God of Israel. Now, why do I mention that these are an example of those that remembered? Well, here's the thing. We've got to remember where it is that Jesus went and where he's at at this particular time and the fact that he's actually been there before. The last time that Jesus was in this area was here in in our study of Matthew, was in Matthew chapter 8 in verses 28 through 34. You don't need to turn there today, but if you want to make note of it, in Matthew chapter 8 verses 28 through 34, we encounter the demoniac, the man who was possessed of demons, and that Jesus uh, comes to him as this man comes out in in chains, and, and he exercises the demons within him. He casts them out and they go into a herd of swine. We see this passage in other gospels as well. We have a parallel of it in Mark in chapter 5. And in Mark chapter 5 and verses 1 through 20, write that down as well. We have a little bit more insight into the account of the demoniac and this herd of swine. In Mark's account, we see three major things, okay? First, we see that the demons cry out and they ask to go into the swine, which Jesus permits. And they go into the pigs and then they they run down into the sea. Okay, And then the other thing that we see in this account is that the townspeople, when this happens, if you recall, what do the townspeople say? They come to Jesus and do they say, oh, praise God. We're We're just so amazed by what you've done. No, they say, get out of here. Now, we don't know exactly why, if it's because maybe uh, they're, you know, thoughtful of their buddy who lost a whole bunch of pigs, or if it's just this guy freaks me out, uh, whatever the case may be, they say, go, leave, get out of here. But Mark also tells us a third thing about the man in particular. There's actually two men, we don't always see this depending on the perspective we're given in the gospel, but there's two men who are demon-possessed. One of them comes to Jesus, and because he's now been made whole, because he's been restored, he says to Jesus, let me go with you. Please, let me go along with you. Let me spend time with you. What does Jesus say? He says, no. But what he does tell him is he says, go back home. Go to your friends. Go to the people and tell them what I've done for you. And in Mark in chapter 5 and verse 20, it says that the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him. And all were amazed. And now Jesus is back and what's happening. Multitudes are now coming to Jesus. The very people who formerly had said, get out of here, we want nothing to do with you because of this man who was changed, because of this man who was transformed, who did what Jesus asked him to do, Now multitudes are coming to Jesus and glorifying the God of Israel. Do you see here a picture of what it is that we are to do as the church? 
And so you see, at first, the people in this area rejected Jesus, but because someone spoke of what God had done, the next opportunity they had, they remembered and they came to Jesus in great number. Friends, one of the greatest ways for us to strengthen our own faith as well as to foster faith in others, is to tell of his works in our life. As we think this morning of of faith, and as we think of the season of Advent, and remembering, and memories, and making new memories, how do we do that? We point people to Christ. Psalm uh, 145, verse 6 says, I will tell of your marvelous works I will proclaim your great power. Christian, that's what you are called to do. How has God transformed your life? You want to have faith? You want to have faith that doesn't forget? You want to see other people come to faith? You don't have to be a PhD in Christian apologetics. It might help a time or two. But do not convince yourself under any circumstances that because you don't have a theology degree that you're not qualified to go out and tell others about Jesus. He has changed your life, Christian, and so he's given you a testimony. And that testimony is yours. No one can take it away. And when you share it, when you declare his wonderful works, when you tell of his great power, it will have an impact. Amen? We see then in verse 32, now Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat and I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So this great multitude had been with Jesus now for three days. You didn't know it today, but we're actually, we actually locked the doors and we're just going to stay here till Wednesday right? Church is, we're just going to have church, folks, right? Don't worry, we'll feed you along the way. How do you feel about that? How do you, you're like, whoa, didn't expect that, right? Hour and a half max, pastor, right? We got a, we got a time that we got to cut this thing off. Think of this. I mean, think of the commitment of these people. Think of how transforming was the ministry of Christ in their lives that they, man, they just wanted to be there. They wanted to spend time with him, but Jesus has compassion on them. He says, they're out of food now. These people are hungry. And so it says here, Jesus had compassion on them. And it's interesting because it doesn't appear that the disciples necessarily did. Uh, They didn't seem overly concerned, but Jesus was. And in verse 33 then, it says, Then his disciples said to him, listen to this, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And of course, now we come to our second example this time of those who have forgotten. Now, if this scenario is sounding familiar to you, that's good. It means you're remembering, okay? We saw something similar, but it's just that. It was similar just a few chapters before. But these are not the same event. The feeding of the 5,000 that we saw earlier is different than the feeding that we're seeing here, which is of 4,000. What's about to happen here is another miraculous feeding of a multitude, this time of a lesser number. And it's in a different area with a different amount of food than before. So then Jesus is here wanting to feed the people and the disciples can't seem to grasp how this is going to happen. Hmm. If only, if only they knew a guy who could miraculously multiply food. 
then all their problems would be taken care of, right? And Jesus says to them in verse 34, and listen, we got to be careful about this. I, I said it just last week as well. We don't have tone. I so often wish, sometimes the Greek gives us some insight. It's not that we never have tone. But there's other times where it's not as clear. And I just can't help but think that Jesus in this moment is saying, how many loaves do you have? Just tell me how many loaves, how many fish. But there's probably too much speculation. Uh, that's my heart coming through, right? And so they say to him, seven. And a, and a few little fish, right? Just, all we got is this. The, the previous time, they had five loaves and two fish. So it seems here that they have even more than what they had before. Their resources, you could say, are even greater this time. Yet they're wondering, how in the world are we going to feed such a significant crowd of people? Now, perhaps, perhaps they're thinking that, well, we're amongst the Gentiles here. Certainly, Jesus isn't going to feed them the way that he fed the, the house of Israel. Maybe he'll heal them, but hey, he's not going to feed them. We don't know this for sure, but, but it could be that they're thinking. The only thing that I can seemingly discern in this passage is that they don't seem to consider the works that Jesus has done before. That's the only conclusion I can draw from this passage. And so in verse 35, so he commanded, this being Jesus, the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks. And he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. And so they all ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets full of fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men. Same as before here. Uh, in terms of the way that the numbers are given, 4,000 men besides women and children. What this means, just like we considered before, is what we're, what we're saying here is, is at a minimum, this is 4,000 people. The fact that Matthew includes here that it's besides women and children suggests that this is likely much more, perhaps even upwards of 8, 10, 15,000 people that have gathered to him on the hillside. And so he feeds them, and then he sends away the multitude, gets into a boat, and comes to the region of Magdala. Now, I can't help but notice here in this other miraculous feeding that we are given specifics in, in terms of numbers, right? In the first feeding, it was five loaves and two fishes, yet 5,000 plus women and children were served with 12 baskets remaining. And here it is, seven loaves and we'll say three-ish fish for 4,000 plus women and children, and seven baskets left over. Matthew gives us these numbers. I wonder why. Now, much has been said of, of, of this, of the numbers that are here, and the fact that Jesus' ministry, and, and I don't know that I necessarily hold to this particular view. It's just interesting as you read different things that many people have suggested, well, if you look at the two feedings, the feeding of the 5,000, which was Israel, and then the feeding of the 4,000, which was the Gentiles, that with Israel, the 12 disciples distributed the food greater in number and had 12 baskets left over, indicative of Jesus' care for Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel, that in fact, he would cover them and care for them. And then here with the Gentiles, with seven loaves and seven baskets left over, seven being that number of completion or perfection in the Bible, speaks then of his ministry and its completion as it's reached beyond the uh, borders of Israel and, and covering the Gentiles as well. Certainly, I think a strong argument can be made for this, I suppose. Many people seem to adhere to this. And so I'm not here to either say, yes, that's absolutely what it is, or no, it's not. But what I see here 
to me clearly in both cases is this, that in both feedings, Jesus says, bring me what you have. Bring to me what you have. And what seems to be the case is that the less that you have, the more that he can do with. He fed more the first time around with less resources than he did the next time. And I think that's a lesson for us. That Jesus says to you, to, to each and every one of you, especially those to, to, that, that have yet to surrender their lives to Christ, as he calls, as the Holy Spirit is, is with you, ministering you, bringing you unto repentance, that he says, come. Over and over again, we've considered in our studies throughout Matthew, as well as in Genesis, God is a God who says, come to me. Come to me. Bring, me. bring me what you have. I don't care how little it is. In fact, it seems the less you have, the more that I can do with it. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler who came to him, who had much and said, Lord, what must I do to follow you? He says, go and sell all that you have. Then come and follow me. The rich young ruler went away sad, so attached to the mass of his possessions. Jesus wants you to come to him. And it doesn't matter how little you have, just bring it to him and he can use it. Worried that your life is all used up? Worried that you're beyond the reach of his grace? Thinking that maybe you're just too far gone, you, just, you're, you're, you, you don't have it all together like everybody else, you can't possibly come to him. That's not it at all. You're exactly who he wants. Someone who he can take and use and work with mold and shape and make into the image into the person that he's created you to be. And so after he feeds them, it says that they, they leave this area. Now they get back in a boat. They go across the sea, northwest now across the Sea of Galilee to the region or the area of Magdala. And we come then into chapter 16 and verse 1. And it says, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and they tested him or testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. It's interesting, no sooner does Jesus return to the region. That's why he left, right? I mean, of course, Jesus has his, he, he seeks the Father, he prays to the Father, he knows what he's doing, it's not by chance, but, but prior to him departing the area, it was the Pharisees, and he leaves, and he goes to the Gentiles, and now he comes from the area of the Gentiles back into Israel, and boom, here they are again, right? No sooner does he come back than his friends, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, find him again. They're like bad pennies, right? They always show up. Now, these two groups are not normally together. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as you've even seen in the Gospel of Matthew, are not often together, nor are they the best of friends. But here, what we begin to see is that they have a commonality now, a common hatred of Jesus. And so they form an unlikely alliance. It's funny how that happens in our culture even still today. And here's the thing. Pharisees and Sadducees, they had good beginnings, they started with good intentions. The Pharisees, during the time of captivity there in Babylon, they were set on retaining the teachings of the law, both the oral and the written. They wanted to preserve their heritage. The Sadducees wanted to preserve the written law, and they were very much associated with the priesthood. But the, the Pharisees, in their legalism, became self-righteous. And the Sadducees, they, in their priestly and eventual political alliances, became intertwined with the aristocracy, and they began to compromise on the word. The Pharisees were the ones who added to Scripture, which always leads to legalism. And the Sadducees were the ones who took away from Scripture, which leads to literal, uh, liberalism. And it gave way to self 
indulgence. And here now, these two groups are coming together to Jesus seeking a sign. And in verse 2, we read, And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. You see, Jesus does not indulge their request. Rather, he once again rebukes them, calling them hypocrites. Now, you may have heard the old saying, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Anybody ever heard that before? Right? It seems these sayings have been around for a while. And Jesus here says, he says, you guys want to look at the weather and suggest that you can somehow predict things based off of what you're seeing in the sky, that you can determine something, but yet you don't see what is happening right in front of you. So you see, in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we have our third example this morning. This example being less of those who forget or those who remember, and more so examples of why. Why do people forget? Why do some people remember? Friends, if we only knew the things that are happening right before our very eyes that we miss on a regular basis, why do we miss it? We're given the examples here in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We miss it because in our self-righteousness, in our self-centeredness, in our self-indulgence, we blind ourselves to the work of God. We too often find ourselves coming to God, seeking perhaps even more than we should, in that we, like the religious leaders, want a, a, a sign. But, but, God, but God says, is, He is a sign. He says, it, it's all around you. He says effectively here, get some perspective. The heavens declare his greatness, right? It's all around us. The evidence of God is there. And we live in this culture today, and it's still today, it's not just then. We live in this culture today that encourages us to find meaning in life by pursuing all of our desires, with marketing campaigns that absolutely appeal to you and are incredibly successful, and it says, have it your way. Do it the way that you want. Have it customized, tailored. It's all about you. We have this culture that says there's no absolute truth. Anything goes. No morality. And, and, and this idea, this sort of new age philosophy that if you just stare at your belly button long enough, you'll reach enlightenment. And meanwhile... God is right there. The creator of the universe is right there. But such is the leaven of the world. It makes its way in. And it distracts and it spoils. And Jesus warns us against this. He says in verse 5, Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so you see, Jesus is looking to make this encounter a lesson for the disciples. Jesus is coming, we have to understand, Jesus is now in the last year of his ministry. The, the cross is coming very quickly. And he knows that he's using these men, these 12 men that he's chosen, 
that sometimes we might be a little surprised by. <laughs> but these are the guys. These are the ones. These are the guys that are going to take this ministry and this message and take it to the then known world. And they're not just going to take it to the world. They're going to turn that world upside down. And Jesus understands as he begins now to spend more and more time with these men, preparing them, teaching them. And so he takes the opportunity here. to He wants to show them. He wants to help them to understand what's happening here as they come, as the Pharisees and Sadducees come to him and make this request. He wants them to see. Do you see how, how, how their false teaching, their false doctrine, how it's... And, and, and I paraphrase, it screwed everything up. He wants the disciples to understand, you've got to be aware of this. The same way that he wants us to understand, you've got to be aware today of what's going on out there. You know how quickly the philosophy of the world makes its way into you? Do you know how regularly today what's happening out there makes its way in here? And, and I wouldn't pretend this morning, by the way, to have a, a, a perfect church. I think we're a pretty good church. I think we do things pretty well. But we're constantly praying and considering and, and asking, Lord, Lord, show us. How do you want this to be done, Lord? How do you want us to do this? I am firmly convinced that when I get to heaven, that, that there's going to be an understanding for me, a realization of the way that we did church. And there's going to be so many things I believe that I'm going to go, oh, man, boy, did we get that wrong. But, but praise God for his mercy and for his grace. And you just say, okay, Lord, help us to, to not get too many things wrong. Show us, Lord, teach us. Because so much of the world is making its way into the church today. And praise God that what we're seeing, there is a trend right now amongst the younger generation. For as much as younger generations get a bad rap, there is a desire amongst younger generations right now for greater authenticity, for greater moves of the Holy Spirit, for worship. Now, sometimes this is manifesting itself in a bit more of the liturgical, which is a bit concerning because there is somewhat of a shift towards, uh, say, for example, the Orthodox Church, which I'm, I'm not here to condemn. But, but we got to be careful in that setting as well. Remember, we can just go back a couple chapters and talk about tradition if you'd like and how that gets in the way. But what's driving it is the fact that you've got, you've got kids, I call them kids, but you've got young people, young adults today, and they, they maybe are going out on a Thursday or a Friday night, and then they're coming to church on Sunday morning, and they're saying, these two things look too similar. And by the way, the club's doing it better. The lighting and the sound and all the stuff that's happening on Friday night at wherever it is that I'm going, they do it better than the church on Sunday morning. Well, they darn well better do that better. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to be mistaken for the club. Now, I got to get off the soapbox there for a minute, but we got, this is what he's talking about. It's so many different things that are going on in the world that Jesus says, beware of this leaven. Disciples, listen to me. This is what can make its way in. And, and we're talking today about forgetful faith. We can easily become accidental Pharisees and Sadducees too. So quickly, the world creeps into so many areas of our life. And I don't even think we realize sometimes how much of it has. But here we encounter then our fourth example. It's with the disciples again here, and it's another example of forgetful faith. They take us off on this little rabbit trail away from what it is that Jesus is addressing here. As it says in verse 7, and they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we have taken no bread. We have to understand what's happening here. Of course, Matthew gives us insight into the fact that as they came over, they forgot to bring bread with them. Then Jesus is saying to them, take heed. 
Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Jesus says, beware, beware of this. And this isn't out of left field, by the way. Jesus had just a couple chapters earlier, according to our reading here, mentioned leaven as well as its effects. It's not the first time that he's talked about this. But the disciples here, they're like that kid who gets called on in class but hasn't been paying attention, right? And then in that panicked response, they sort of reveal their lack of faith. It never happened to me in class, by the way, never. I was always on point, always paying attention, right? Now, you know what it's like. You're not paying attention. And you get called and you're like, what were they saying? What, what was it? What was it? And so the disciples are reasoning amongst themselves and they're looking and, and I'm just going to say maybe it was Peter. Who knows, right? Peter seems to be a good guess. It's like, somebody forgot the bread, who forgot the bread, right? He knows we forgot the bread. And then they're going into this sort of panic here, right? And, 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 and in so doing, they're revealing again their mindset and where their hearts are at. As they think, oh no, he knows about the bread. Because of course, the man who is now fed upwards of maybe even 50,000 people with a few loaves and fish couldn't possibly know what to do if you forgot the bread, Right? So Jesus, being aware of it in verse 8, says to them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it? That you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. You see, as tempted as I am to be frustrated with and critical of the disciples, I then begin to wonder, how many times does God have to do a work in my life for me to get it? But the tendency, if you're not strengthened and rooted in faith, is to immediately panic. But Jesus has been showing them all along as he shows you, Christian. Going back to, go back to, to Matthew in, in, chapter, in chapter 6, right? I mean, this is really the beginning. This is the beginning of his ministry. As he began to teach there in the Sermon on the Mount, and what does he say? He says, therefore I say to you, do not worry. Don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. He says, look at the birds of the air. He says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to your stature? He says, look at the lilies of the field. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He concludes that passage by saying, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Or even back to the beginning uh, when, he, when he called these men into ministry. The way in which he even miraculously provided for them early on. And their great catch of fish. Or in, in the feeding of the 5,000. Or in the walking on the water. In the calming of the storm. Or in the feeding of the 4,000. And the healing of the multitude there on the hillside. Over and over and over again. The similar could be said of... His working in my own life. And I trust yours as well. In verse 12, we read, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I invite the worship team to come forward and lead us in song as we prepare to take communion. 
I want us to understand something here, that Jesus, in his mercy and grace toward them, was patient. And they realized what it was that he was talking about, and it says that they understood. And, and, and of course, I find myself asking, well, well, did they? Did they understand? I think they were beginning to. They were beginning to understand, but it would still take them some time to, to really figure it out. But when they did, their lives would be truly transformed. They would then, when they understood, when they, even though at this point, certainly, especially that encounter out on the water when Jesus came walking to them in the midst of the, of the wind as they were struggling across the sea and as he came into the boat and they declared, you are the son of God. This was just a part of the process of them understanding. But when they truly came to that place, for some as they had breakfast with him there on the sea, on the seashore after his resurrection, they would be set on a path of courageous faith. God would use them to turn the world upside down. Every one of them, save one, would meet a martyr's death. They would give their lives literally for the message. John would be spared only because God had something that he wanted him to do. It wasn't because they didn't try to kill him. No doubt if I was John, I'd be thinking, I just want to go home. I just want to be with the Lord. But the Lord had something else for him and eventually he pens revelation and distributes it to the churches. These men were changed because of their experiences with God. And I wonder, have you ever been oblivious to what God was doing in your life? Maybe you are right now. Have you ever in despair forgotten about the resources that God possesses? And God is maybe speaking to you, calling you into deeper faith. And you think he's shouting, hey, don't forget the bread. And it's so much more than that. That God's call to you sounds more to you like get yourself together, right? Or, or something you've got to do before you can come to him. And, it, and it's, it's so much more than that. He's just saying, come to me, bring to me what you have. See, the Christian life is a life of faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so I'd ask, how is your faith today? Let's consider our examples today. Maybe like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you've gotten a little too focused on self. Whether through legalism or liberalism, you've drifted from the truth of scripture. You're spending too much time in the world and the world's spending too much time in you. And you need to get a better perspective Sometimes we need to just take a step back to get some perspective. Like the psalmist, and, and I'll begin to transition us to communion here. I want to read from Psalm 77. This is a psalm of Asaph, and it says this, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice. And he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I called to remembrance my song in the night. I, I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever and will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. 
Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. You see, here, though he's in a difficult place, in a difficult time, though he's searching and struggling, he comes to the decision, I will remember. I will remember what it is that you have done. And in remembering, you will give me strength to move forward. It's the same pattern still today. Let me pray for you as you go. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you'd bless each of these here, Lord, as they follow after you. Lord Jesus, as our good shepherd, we ask that you'd lead us and guide us and give us the boldness, Lord. Give us the faith to declare what it is that you have done, Lord. There might be many who pursue you, Lord, we pray. Strengthen us, Lord, we ask. Lord, again, go before each of these here, Lord, as they follow after you, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.